Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, friends. This is Theodora Donison, cardiology fellow at Mayo Clinic and Cardio Nerds Academy chief of House Thomas. It is my honor to welcome you to the brand new Cardio Nerds Cardiovascular Genomics series. You will learn the A to Z of clinical genetics using different cardiology subspecialties as examples. First, in this episode, we learn the basics with an introduction to clinical genetics and electrophysiology in this illuminating discussion between Drs. Carla Asturias, Colin Blumenthal, Sarah Coles, and James Daubert. In future episodes, we will discuss genetic counseling and family screening for ARVC, and then frontiers in clinical genetics, including polygenic testing and pharmacogenomics within cardiovascular prevention. Be sure to read the phenomenal show notes developed by Dr. Carla Asturias for this episode. Audio editing was performed by CardioNerds intern Pacey Wettstein. Here at CardioNerds, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders in our work to democratize cardiovascular education. This episode was developed in collaboration with the American Society of Preventive Cardiology and supported with unrestricted educational sponsorship from Illumina, Inc. As always, all CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by the CardioNerds team. If you enjoy the show, support our mission and help others find us by rating and reviewing us on your preferred podcast app. Now, without further ado, let's dive right in and get nerdy! Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Sarah Coles, Cardiology Fellow at Duke University, and I'm joined by my fellow CardioNerds, Dr. Carla Asturias medicine resident at Pennsylvania Hospital, and Dr. Colin Blumenthal, cardiology fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Carla and Colin. Thank you, Sarah. So happy to be here. Hi, Sarah and Carla. I'm just absolutely excited to be here and learn about cardiovascular genetics with you through the lens of electrophysiology. I could not agree more. So to teach us all today, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce our expert, Dr. James Daubert. He is a professor of medicine at the Duke University School of Medicine. He's a clinical electrophysiologist at Duke University Hospital with a practice niche of inherited arrhythmia syndromes and a member of the Duke Clinical Research Institute. Dr. Daubert is also one of our leaders in sports cardiology and heads efforts for the Duke University Division I athlete ECG screenings, as well as organizing an annual sudden death in young athlete symposium at Duke. After getting his MD at Thomas Jefferson University, he completed his internal medicine residency, cardiology fellowship, and EP fellowship at Duke University, including a chief medicine resident year. Dr. Daubert is a teacher, he's a master clinician, and an expert in the field of electrophysiology and the care of young patients with arrhythmia and aborted sudden cardiac death. Dr. Daubert, you were actually one of the first EP faculty I met at Duke. It was while I was in attendance at the Sudden Death and Young Athletes Symposium at Duke as an intern and aspiring electrophysiologist. And now, this past year, I've been able to join you on the EP consult service as a cardiology fellow and in the lab performing device implantations and ablations together. It's really an honor to be able to have you with us today and share all the wisdom you've been able to pass along to me and my fellowship colleagues regarding clinical genetics and electrophysiology. 
Dr. Dabert, thank you for being with us today for this exciting episode on Cardio Nerds. Well, Sarah, thank you for that too kind introduction. And it's great being a cardio nerd for the day or an honorary cardio nerd. And congratulations to you all for this, this great educational project. So I certainly like to commend you for, for your seeking out these opportunities like our sudden S and athletes symposium and, and thanks for participating in the screening of the athletes on one of our sessions recently handling those ECGs as they come off the press in athletes. It's such a tense situation. You know, people have dedicated their life to training in a certain sport and anything like this could rarely derail it. So, so it's a great, great to have you participating in that as well. Absolutely. It's certainly my pleasure. And it was such an honor to be a part of that experience as well as creating our athletes at Duke. So to get us started, I actually wanted to turn our attention to the topic at hand which is really close to my heart. Sorry, pun completely intended. You know, in the last 10 years alone, we've made incredible advances in the field of genetic medicine. Not only have we expanded the realm of clinical genetics focusing on monogenic disease, but technology has ushered us into a world where whole exome or whole genome sequencing is actually affordable in both the academic and community realms. Anne has introduced us to genomic medicine, leading to the study of polygenic disease and risk scores for common cardiac diseases. This has advanced the understanding and study of genetics at an astronomical pace. However, there's still so much catching up we have to do in order to understand what it means and how it applies to our patients. However, I've found that unless you've made this an area of study, general understanding falls short of what's required when a patient presents with genetic testing results or ask for more information on genetic testing for a particular disease. Even something as simple as language used in genetic testing and the types of genetic testing can be actually really difficult to unpack. So Dr. Daubert, to dive into these topics further, I have a really great case to kickstart our discussion. Mr. Channelopathy is a 19-year-old man who comes to see us in the CardioNerds EP Genetics Clinic after a recent hospitalization. Weeks prior, he was found by his family in the middle of the night, unresponsive. His father immediately initiated CPR. When EMS arrived, they were able to resuscitate him after two separate shocks were delivered with an AED, and he was taken to the local medical center. After several days in the ICU and completion of targeted temperature management, he was weaned from his mechanical ventilation and had full neurologic recovery. His initial ECG showed normal sinus rhythm, and transthoracic echo showed normal cardiac function and no evidence of structural abnormality. Importantly, his urine and serum drug screens were negative and his blood alcohol level was zero. The rest of his workup for sudden cardiac arrest was unrevealing. Without much understanding of why the patient went into sudden cardiac arrest, a repeat ECG at hospital day four revealed what was suspected to be a type 1 Brugada pattern. He was promptly taken to the EP lab where they performed an EP study with procainamide challenge and successful provocation of type 1 Brugada pattern, followed by ventricular tachycardia and aborted with cardioversion. He had an ICD implanted during the instant hospitalization and was sent home after having consented to and completed genetic testing. He arrives at your office with his results, which he says show that he has a dominant form of Brugada syndrome. And he asks what the results mean. You notice that he completed a Brigada panel for genetic testing, 
which shows a variant in the SCN5A gene that's noted to be pathogenic. So, Dr. Daubert, how do you counsel this patient as to the results of this test? And would you interpret these results differently if it was a woman? Well, that's a, a really good case, and, and I think it has a lot to learn that we can learn about Brigada and its genetics, Sarah. So let me just remind folks, what's a type 1 pattern? So there's type 1, there's, there's type 2 and 3, and we've really placing less emphasis on 3, and really type 1 is, it's important to recognize that's the only diagnostic one. The others, particularly if you're in a family and see that, it may give you a hint that this could be a patient with Brugada. And as your vignette showed, you know, this pattern on the ECG can be intermittent. It can be transient and related to either medications or fever or other conditions. So one lead, usually Z1 or V2, two millimeters or more of ST elevation downsloping, and a concave downward pattern. So they found that, and of course, this is in the setting of a recent cardiac arrest, and Brugada, you know, causes polymorphic VT and VF. Now, the genetics of Brugada are, are quite challenging, and we're going to get into this a little bit, but this patient did undergo genetic testing and, and has a hit, has what we used to call a mutation, but now it's called a variant, a pathogenic variant. And we'll talk about that and what does pathogenic mean and, and what are the alternatives to that. But dominant, that means, you know, this is simplistically a little bit thought of as a autosomal dominant inheritance, meaning if you have one copy abnormal copy of the gene that you may manifest clinical condition, Brugada syndrome. So in this patient, we have the type one pattern, we have his cardiac arrest. So he's got Brugada syndrome. The genetic test helps us understand it a little bit, and it may indicate that, that the patient has a little bit more of a clinically significant form of the syndrome. Again, you know, we already know that he had a, he had a cardiac arrest. So what if this were a woman that had the genetic test? Well, I think the main thing comes out there is that, is that to clinically manifest Brugada syndrome is more common in males than females. So if we take a person having that same sodium channel SCN5A mutation or pathogenic variant, we should say, and this patient is a woman, she is a bit less likely to exhibit the pattern and especially to become symptomatic. So I think that that's the significance there. So, you know, it fits, it fits with his diagnosis. It probably doesn't really change how we're going to manage this patient. He has a clear class one indication for an ICD. He's gotten the ICD, but it, it opens up further evaluation of his family. That's really excellent, Dr. Norbert. And thank you for reminding us about the different types of Brigada pattern on ECG. It's really important to recognize those. And it sort of points me in a couple different areas to just follow up on. It sounds like our patient has a really classic phenotype for Brugada syndrome. So why is phenotyping so important when you're tying it with a genetic test? And then to follow that up, what does the fact that he had a panel genetic testing mean? Was it 
a series of genes or was it a specific variant? And, and what are those different tests that we can use in genetics? Great questions. So phenotype and genotype is kind of the language of, of dealing with these patients. And either one can be positive or negative. So phenotype, you know, this patient has the clinical syndrome. He has the ECG, he has the cardiac arrest. That's the phenotype. Genotype is whether he or she has the pathogenic variant. And that's a fantastic question. Why is phenotyping correctly so important? Because if we get the phenotype wrong and then do genetic testing and find something, we may be led down, you know, a serious path of harm, you know, in evaluating this patient's family because we don't have the phenotype right, then we're, you know, we're not going to be testing for the right condition. And we may be incorrectly reassuring other family members that they don't have risk or almost as bad or just as bad at creating anxiety and additional testing, both non-invasive and invasive in other family members based on our incorrect phenotype. So that really is is so important. The other couple other things that that your questions brought up, rare variants, Mendelian monogenic versus common variants or polygenic inheritance. And we used to think of Brugada syndrome as, as the former category where you have an SCN5A mutation and yep, you've got Brugada syndrome and uh, other members of the family, if, if they are tested, don't have the positive genetic test, they don't have it. Unfortunately, it's gotten a little more complex than that. How so? So there was a case published a few years, a family published a few years ago, where we have the proband, has Brugada syndrome, gets a genetic test, just like our patient, Mr. Channelopathy, the 19-year-old, and this patient in this other family has the SCN5A mutation. So other members of his family go on and get both clinical testing, ECGs, you know, do they have that ST elevation path that's typical of Brugada? And, you know, in various orders, they also underwent genetic testing. And unfortunately, or fortunately in this family, things didn't sort like they were supposed to. So they had patients who had the uh, SCN5A genetic change, but not the condition, and others who had the Brugada ECG, the phenotype that is, but did not have that SCN5A pathogenic variant. So this, this led to increased awareness that the genetics of Brugada syndrome are more complex than we were thinking, and that there may be multiple genes involved. There may be other variants don't rise to the pathogenic variant level of significance in SCN5A that may influence the function of the protein. And there may be other genes. So you could think of it as a diagenic situation, a two-hit situation. So you have to have that SCN5A change plus something else to go on and manifest it. And what we're kind of talking about there is penetrance. So we come back to our family. We have a 
proband, somebody has the condition, Brugada in this case. We have a genotype positive, so phenotype positive, genotype positive, SCN5A pathogenic variant. That patient's first-degree relative gets a genetic test, and they have that same pathogenic variant. But we look at their ECG, it's mammal. Maybe we even do that provocative testing with procainamide or if we're in Europe, ajmaline, and they still don't have the Brigada change. So that means it's an incompletely penetrant condition. To take another example, if we have a patient with long QT, a genetic change that, that's thought to be pathogenic, their sister gets the genetic test. They also have that pathogenic variant, but we look at their ECG and the QT is normal. So that's incomplete penetrance. And a number of factors can influence this. Environmental temperature. You know, fever can bring on Brugada. Exercise can bring on ARVC in, in a genetically predisposed individual. So let's talk a little bit about you know, we've been talking about a pathogenic variant, and this is sort of a, you know, you could be a lumper or a splitter, but these things really get into a number of bins. It's not a yes, no kind of an answer on these tests. So if we think of how likely this genetic change, this variation in the DNA is to be causative for the clinical situation, we have a pathogenic variant far over to one side, most likely to be causative. Next to it is a likely pathogenic variant. And then in the middle is a VUS, variant of unknown significance. And that's an important group to think about, but let's keep, keep going from one side to the other. So next would be likely benign and then definitely benign. This is definitely benign. So that's a common polymorphism, a common change in the DNA that's known not to be associated with disease. So the VUS again is the really important one. And, and that's a, you know, it's an uncommon variant, unlike those benign ones far over to one side, the opposite of the pathogenic variant. The VUS is an uncommon variant, but we don't know whether it's significant. We haven't seen it in other families. And we aren't sure from the computer modeling and other things that can be done as to whether it's going to impact the function of this protein that this gene is making. So it's, it's intermediate in significance. And these go on to whether we should do genetic testing in the family. Does that make sense, Sarah? And then we should talk about the different kinds of tests, you know, whether it's a panel test. I think you brought that question up. So our patient there, Mr. Channelopathy, he underwent panel testing. So, you know, the sodium channel gene and, and maybe other genes that are debatable as to whether they are causative for Brugada. In fact, there's a movement that maybe only the SCN5A is the only one we're sure about. But anyways, this patient underwent looking at the whole sodium channel gene, the whole SCN5A. And the hit was found, the pathogenic variant. Single variant. So that is, if we're going to test his family, we only want to look for that specific change somewhere along the sodium channel. 
And does that other family member have it? Then we get out in the other direction to more broad testing, whole exome and even whole genome. These are so far mostly research, but they're really coming into the mainstream and, and getting important. Why are they important? Because we don't have all the answers when it comes to, you know, we have a phenotype positive, but genotype negative person, but there probably is some genetic explanation. We just don't have it. That's where we get into whole exome or whole genome evaluations. So whole exome, we're looking at all the coding parts of the DNA, which is about 2% of the DNA. And whole genome, we're looking at all of the DNA, the non-coding parts, the parts that are regulatory, that express whether that gene that's getting coded, how often is it transcribed and how you know, other variations and how it gets expressed are important. So that's a, a lot about this type of genetic testing that we've done on your patient there, Sarah. Does that make sense? Any follow-up questions? That makes perfect sense. That was excellent, Dr. Dauber. Thank you. Yeah, that was just an absolute perfect introduction and essentially an entire crash course to genetic testing all at once. And I think the language used around genetic testing is so foreign to most clinicians because it's just not a place that we live in or visit often. And as cardiologists or practitioners in cardiology, we really need to familiarize ourselves given the increased utilization of genetic testing in clinical practice. And this brings me to my next patient for you, Dr. Daubert. So next, we have Ms. Punnett Square. She's a 21-year-old woman who you are seeing in clinic after a recent hospitalization for cholecystitis. She is now status post-cholecystectomy and had an uncomplicated post-operative course. During her hospital stay, however, she had an EKG done for chest and epigastric pain and was noted to have a type 1 Brugada pattern, which was astutely noted by her hospitalist. She received a repeat EKG to confirm the finding which again showed ST segment elevation consistent with type 1 Brugada pattern and leads V1 through V3. Troponins were negative and her chest pain spontaneously resolved and vitals remained stable throughout. Upon discharge, she was referred to cardiology who noted that she had been seen in their clinic before for a history of palpitations and lightheadedness. A thorough workup was done including an EKG showing normal sinus rhythm, a 14-day Holter monitor demonstrating sinus rhythm with some premature atrial contractions, but no atrial or ventricular arrhythmias, a transthoracic echocardiogram with normal ejection fraction and no structural abnormalities, and finally, an EKG treadmill stress test, which was negative for ischemia and did not reproduce her symptoms. Given the type 1 Brugada pattern on her EKG, she completed another 14-day Holter monitor, which showed normal sinus rhythm with PACs and sinus tachycardia and no evidence of atrial or ventricular arrhythmias, and she was sent to your clinic for further evaluation. In your conversation with her, she mentions that she has episodes of palpitation and lightheadedness for years, but denies syncope, presyncope, or loss of consciousness, and also does not have a family history of any of these clinical issues. Given her clinical presentation and personal family history, lack of evidence of a ventricular arrhythmia, this brings up a couple questions that I feel like I've encountered a few times in clinic, actually. So in a patient like this, that you sort of have this idea that she, you suspect an inherited disease, you know, with her type 1 Brugada pattern. When do you consider genetic testing and what type of testing would be indicated in a patient like Miss Square? And as a follow-up, she's asking about her siblings 
who else in the family might need genetic testing in a situation like this? And when should we perform that genetic testing? And if she were to have children, would that extend to her children? Do you perform the testing immediately? Or do you have to wait for them to be a specific age? Colin, that's a, that's a great case. And congrats to her hospitalist for, for recognizing that pattern. And it's interesting, the chest pain and Brugada is, is always an interesting story because the, the changes of Brugada look like tombstones. They look like someone's having an anteroceptal acute MI. And so we often see them in genetics clinic after they've had a cast. And, you know, of course, generally it's normal. So that's always an interesting finding. A couple of other things, uh, Holter and the symptoms of palpitation. You know, we, if somebody has palpitations and has Brugada, we'll certainly get a Holter. But what I always tell them, we're not going to find much on here that, that likely is related to Brugada syndrome because really the symptoms are syncope, abrupt collapse or aborted cardiac arrest. And that's always a little scary telling people that, but you know, it's important to see what's causing their symptoms and recognize that. But people generally don't have symptoms from, you know, a sustained run of polymorphic VT, they collapse. And the other thing is the structural. So we used to think of just like the genetics are getting more complex with Brugada, the more we learn about it, the more we understand it, it's, it's not purely an electrical condition. And we can ablate abnormalities on the outflow tract of the right ventricle. And sometimes we can find evidence in a minority of patients with Brugada of a right ventricular, especially kind of a cardiomyopathy. So it's really a very complex condition. And then she denies a family history. I want to delve into that a little bit. So this is a patient who is 21 years old and a lot of, like a lot of 21 year olds, she may not know everything about Aunt Matilda and Uncle Jose and the whole family. So it's great to really get a genetic counselor involved when we, when we get a family history who has the time and the expertise to really delve into this. And it's even more helpful to get our patient, our 21-year-old patient's mother or father on the, on the phone or in clinic so they can help flesh out that family history because, you know, not infrequently we find that one of the uncles just drove their car off the road at age 30 for no reason. You know, they weren't in a situation where they should have fallen asleep. It wasn't a positive drug or alcohol screen. Maybe they had syncope and had sudden cardiac arrest. So that's, that's some clinical aspects to follow up there. But to get to your question, and sorry to be so long-winded, but when do we consider genetic testing in this? So Brugada syndrome is not a high yield for genetic testing. And we've had, you know, maybe a dozen or more genes thought about as causing Brugada, but most of them are so rare and they've really come under criticism as to whether they may also, these rare genetic changes may also be present in control populations, maybe not causative of Brugada. So if we think of the really likely one, it's, it's SCN5A that our first patient had, sodium channel. And it's interesting that 
genetic testing in, in the pro band, the first patient in the family who has this, it's only a class 2A indication. So that means it's reasonable to do the genetic testing, but it's not, you know, this class 2A, so the lower level of, of enthusiasm reflects the 25% chance that we're going to find something. So it's reasonable, but I think the patient needs to be aware that it's it's not not a guarantee finding by any means that we're going to find something. Does that make sense, Colin? And then we can talk about siblings. Yeah, that was absolutely perfect. That was great. So, you, you know, when we do expand that to siblings, is there, do you do that at the same time as you would test the probands? And, and what about children? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So we have this class 2A test and we talk it over with the patient. We, you know, see how much it's going to cost, whether there's insurance coverage, and if they go ahead and, and agree to the genetic testing. And again, this is with a full informed consent that ideally our genetic counselor has helped, helped us with. You know, what are the likely findings of this genetic test that, you know, we talked about likely pathogenic variant and all those and other implications of the genetic test, the cost and the timing and all of those things. So if they go on and have that test, we just test the proband first. And if we get a pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant, that's when we start thinking about cascade screening. What's that? That means testing first degree relatives like her siblings, like her children, if she has any, and like her parents, if they're still living. So first degree relatives would undergo that targeted genetic testing just for the pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants, not a panel, not the whole sodium channel, but just do they have that change at, at amino acid number 345? Let's pick, pick an example. We don't test the whole gene. We just test for that specific pathogenic variant in her first degree relatives, her siblings that we're talking about. Now, in the meantime, we often will go ahead and say, okay, Ms. Square, you have this genetic condition. We're going to recommend that your first degree relatives get clinical testing as well. And so that depends on what condition we're talking about. But for Brigada, it's the highest yield thing is, is an ECG. So they should have an ECG and evaluation with a cardiologist, have they had syncope and of course have they had a cardiac arrest should be should have led to a substantial evaluation already and sort of in the same line when would you not recommend genetic testing when is the juice just not worth the squeeze so to speak yeah great question so i think several situations genetic testing would not be fruitful would not be indicated so I saw a patient recently, he has no children, he has no siblings, his parents are deceased, and he had Brugada syndrome, but there really is not going to be any cascade screening possible for, for this patient. The other situation is where the patient has limitations to their insurance, has concerns about whether the presence of a genetic condition is going to affect their other aspects of their life. And then when we don't have a good 
phenotype that we talked about earlier. We don't have a solid diagnosis, clinical diagnosis. So we shouldn't use this as a kind of a shotgun thing in a condition we really don't understand and let's just do genetic testing. So if we have, let's take another example, long QT, we have a patient with really a borderline QT, we shouldn't do genetic testing. But on the other hand, if we have someone with syncope, definite long QT, really long numerically uh, QT interval, you know, that's the kind of situation where we would pursue genetic testing versus we wouldn't. So lack of a phenotype and, and you know, is it going to be useful for cascade screening depending upon how big a family is? That was just really excellent. And there's just so much information and so many pearls in, in that section. And it makes me think of a couple ethical or, you know, related questions. For example, there are a lot of incidental findings or variants of unknown significance that can arise with genetic testing, especially when considering something like whole exome sequencing. How do you counsel patients on this? And what do you do with a incidental finding result or a variant of unknown significance when the results come back? Yeah, that's really important, Colin. Thanks. Thanks for asking that. The variant of unknown significance, when we get that back, well, again, the, the best thing is to have prepared that patient for the possibility of this situation. You know, I sometimes tell them, this is not sending a blood to the lab and asking what your potassium level is. We're going to get a, a level of 4.2, and we're not going to argue about that. Let's take out the situation of hemolysis, of course. But, but anyways, we need to prepare them beforehand that we may find something like a variant of unknown significance. A gray area is, is kind of how I try and explain it to the patient. It's a change in the DNA. It, it's not one we we commonly see. What do we mean by that? You know, we look at control populations of 5,000 or more individuals with genetic evaluations, and we don't see this this variant, this variant of unknown significance in that population. And it's something that might or might not be causative of change in the protein. It's, it's maybe something that it's in an area of the gene that is conserved. What does that mean? That means that through evolution, there's, there hasn't been a change in this particular area of the gene. And it's thought to be important. It might be in an area of the gene that could have functional significance, binding to a receptor or in getting into the cell, things like that. So that's a variant of unknown significance. What do we do with that? Well, the general answer is that we do not do cascade screening for this because we don't know if this is explaining the clinical situation. In this patient, the Brugada ECG pattern. We're not sure that this is what's what's causing the change. And therefore, if it isn't, if something else is driving the genetic disease, the Brugada syndrome in this patient, and we test her sibling, her brother, let's say, and he he does not have this VUS, we might say, Oh, brother, you're you're not at risk of having Brugada. And if we've falsely concluded that this VUS is the cause 
of the Brigada syndrome and then tell the relative, the brother, that he doesn't have to worry when in fact something else is causing the Brugada syndrome and in our proban, and then the brother has this unknown genetic change. He does, he should worry. So that's why we don't routinely do VUS cascade screening. Now, we say we don't, but in practice we do. <laughs> Let me explain. So if we've got a family with a number of individuals who clinically have the condition or clinically don't have the condition, we may want to look at that family and see whether this VUS, the variant of unknown significance, segregates. What does that mean? That means the presence of this VUS links up with the clinical presence of the phenotype in, in the individuals and vice versa. Individuals in the family who do not have the phenotype, who do not have the Brugada or long QT, whatever we're talking about, they also do not have the VUS. Then we're a little bit down the road of maybe changing this VUS into a likely pathogenic variant. And maybe there's additional work going on in one of the basic EP labs that's that's doing expression of this variant and studying the currents in cells with, it, with its expression and identifying that there, yes, there's a change in the sodium channel current. So if we get information like that, this may bump this VUS up to a, a pathogenic one, or maybe a genetic clinic across the country has also found this VUS in, in a proband and in a family. And you know, so we have, if we have more information like that, this VUS can vary, can, can evolve into a pathogenic or likely pathogenic condition. And it's also important to, let's say we're seeing this patient back a year later or five years later in the clinic, and it was a VUS then, we've got to look it up. Is it still a VUS or has it been reclassified? And the even more scary thing is sometimes a pathogenic, or let's say more likely a likely pathogenic variant, something we called that five years ago, 10 years ago, may have been downgraded, may have been moved down a class to a VUS. Maybe the, the information, the, the basic molecular biology and physiology of the of the channel was reinterpreted. Maybe it was found in a control population to be more frequent than it should be. So these are, this is a living science and it, and it evolves and, uh, and these things are really important. And that's why a genetic counselor is so helpful to help in the care of these patients and preparing them for this genetic test and helping in the follow through and follow up of them because these things will evolve in their classification. So it's a, you opened up a can of worms there, Colin. It's, it's really complicated, but I'm glad you did because it's important that we get into that. I have to say that was absolutely amazing. Thank you for that explanation. And I think it brings to light a lot of mystery around the role of genetic testing in clinical diagnosis. 
It is so important for us to be thinking about when to test, when not to test. But now I would like us to focus a little bit more on what to do with the results when we do decide to test. Because like any good physician, we should know what we're doing with the results of any test we order. So to break this down, we have a case of Mr. Genotype. He's a 42-year-old man with no known medical history who presented to the hospital for recently developing fever, productive cough, and shortness of breath. His vitals were stable, but he was noted to be saturating 88% on room air, so he was placed on 3 liters nasal cannula. His exam revealed bronchi from the base to mid-right lung fields, and chest x-ray show a right middle of infiltrate. He's admitted for bacterial pneumonia and started on levofloxacin. On day two of his admission, his medicine team is notified that he is having episodes of lightheadedness and dizziness while walking that spontaneously resolved. He is placed on telemetry and an EKG is obtained, which reveals normal sinus rhythm with sinus pauses, PVCs, and a corrected QT interval of 610 milliseconds at a heart rate of 68 beats per minute without evidence of bundle branch block. You are rounding on the inpatient electrophysiology team and are consulted on this patient due to prolonged QT interval. Prior to seeing this patient, the medicine team has already switched the patient's antibiotics to ceftriaxone. Unfortunately, Mr. Type goes into V-fib arrest after telemetry captures an R and T episode causing torsades. ACLS is immediately initiated and the code team gets ROSC after one round of compressions and epinephrine. He is started on IV magnesium and taken to the cardiac ICU where you are seeing him in consultation for polymorphic VT in the setting of prolonged QT interval. So Dr. Dover, we want to ask you, what is your approach to diagnosis of long QT syndrome in patients who present like this later in life? And what is the role of genetic testing in the management of long QT syndrome? Well, thank you, Carla. That's, that's a great case also. And I thought you were going to be talking about another Brugada case when you mentioned fever, because of course that can help bring out a type 1 pattern, but this patient has suspected drug-induced long QT or what's sometimes called acquired long QT as opposed to the other form, congenital long QT or inherited long QT. So let's, let's unpack this case a little bit. You mentioned a corrected QT interval of 610, and of course, that's really long. And I would just emphasize that it's important not just to look at the computer read interval uh, for the QT, but to measure it yourself. And there are different ways of measuring the QT. You can use the tangent method or you can use the end of the T wave interval. We'll have, cite some references for that in the accompanying materials, but it's, it's really important to become expert at measuring this yourself. And, and to measure it correctly because previous studies have shown that it's an area that many physicians, even many cardiologists, err and, and are not facile at measuring the QT correctly. So it's very important to become an expert in doing this to do it yourself. And I'll, before we talk about drug-induced QT prolongation, it's, it's important to realize that Many patients who have congenital long QT syndrome during their lifetime are unfortunately prescribed QT prolonging drugs. So there's not a great awareness of this situation, even in patients who have this life-threatening condition. 
more than half of such patients get a QT prolonging drug, and there's good website data on what drugs we need to avoid. But let's get back to this patient, and they've got a very long QT, and they were on a drug, a floxin, ciprofloxacin, or levoquin, I guess it was, that, that is a known drug that prolongs the QT. And there's, you know, there's often several hits. They're often hypokalemic, hypomagnesemic. Maybe they're getting anti-nausea drugs, psychiatric drugs as well. But fortunately, it was recognized, but not recognized early enough, and the patient had torsade. So there's a, a nice clinical series was published recently that looks at how to manage these possibly genetic or inherited conditions, you know, polymorphic VT based on whether the QT is prolonged or not and which drugs to give and, and so on. But magnesium is right here and frequently bradycardia is a problem. So isoprotyrenol or pacing is even better and can be preventive for further episodes of torsade or polymorphic VT in the setting of a long QT. So how do we diagnose this patient? Well, you know, we can pretty well quickly say that there's a possibly acquired long QT here, but it's a little more complicated than that. And I hate to keep saying that, but it's true <laughs> because some of these patients have some genetic predisposition and some of them have, you know, frankly, undiagnosed congenital long QT syndrome. Maybe it wasn't very penetrant. Maybe their QT was 440, 450, or maybe it was missed. Maybe they've never had an ECG before. And then you give them a drug and, and their QT prolongs even more. So what I like to do is see what happens as the dust is settling, you know, manage the urgency, correct the potassium, give magnesium, stop the offending agent, use pacing, whatever it takes, general anesthesia to correct the situation. And then we keep following the ECG. And how, how much does the QT interval improve? Maybe it stays long. And uh, if it stays 500 or so, you know, we may consider that patient to be congenital long QT with, with a second hit with a, with a drug that worsened the situation even more. So if we have a situation like that, then genetic testing may well be indicated. On the other hand, Let's take the patient who maybe we have old ECGs on them and their QT is normal, 400, 420, nothing wrong with the morphology of the T wave, no family history, and they've got maybe two or three things that cause the QT prolongation. We get rid of those. Their QT shortens up to normal. Then we're not in a situation where we're going to do genetic testing for the most part. They have no family history. Their QT is normal other than with this added drug that's caused the situation. And we're unlikely going to find something in that patient. You know, there's a research role for genetic testing, maybe in a research situation, if we're looking for variate uh, conditions that may predispose someone to drug-induced long QT. It's not going to be a full, full-fledged pathogenic variant, but it's going to be a modifying factor, something that modifies their repolarization, that cuts down their repolarization reserve is, 
is the way Dan Roden at Vanderbilt has talked about it. So there might be a research role for genetic testing in a patient like this whose QT comes back totally to normal and has no family history. And that's going to be different than the patient whose QT stays long despite correcting all these things. And, you know, we've got to give it a number of days for the drugs to wash out in that sort of situation. So it's genetic testing is really going to have to wait until the, the dust settles, Carla, to see, you know, is it going to be fruitful to do testing or not in, in this kind of a patient? Does that help address that? Yeah, absolutely. That was amazing. To keep moving forward, we wanted to ask you something very special that we like to ask everybody, and it's about what makes your heart flutter about EP and cardiovascular clinic genetics. Yeah, well, it's it's an exciting area, and I, I'm sure our discussion today has kind of brought that to light and that there's so much we have to learn when we're still learning about these conditions. And, you know, is a gene a pathogenic variant in a gene? Is that, is that really going to stand up or is a variant of unknown significance going to evolve into something, something more likely, more, more causative, more likely to be identified as a causative thing? I think that is exciting. The fact that that these are such tough cases that we often call on our colleagues for help. We have our others in our in our own genetics clinic that we bounce these tough cases off of these challenging patients that we want to get right. We want to we want to get the genetic evaluation right. We want to get the phenotype right. We talked about how critical it is to get the phenotype right. So we'll get others in our clinic involved to to lend another set of eyes on, am I measuring that QT right? How would you measure it? What do you think about this MRI? Is it really abnormal? And so on, depending upon the condition. And we may reach out further and, and ping experts, colleagues, you know, across the country, across the world for their thoughts on, on a specific ECG, on a specific scenario. Would they use an ICD? Would they use a certain drug? Would they do genetic testing? That's what's so exciting about this area. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's in a patient who we've identified in, in the sports cardiology evaluation. And then we've got to do it quick. Their pa- patient, their family, their coaches, their trainers are saying, can this athlete compete? Can they practice? And it really gets a supercharged how, how quickly and accurately, how can we come to the right conclusion as to whether this patient, this, this athlete can participate and what, you know, even there it's evolving. We used to say these patients were prohibited from intense sports, from competitive athletics, that they could only do things at a much lower intensity, like bowling or badminton. That is not something a soccer player or basketball player wants to hear. But now we're, we're making allowances. We're saying if this patient, this athlete is asymptomatic, but has this genetic condition, certain genetic conditions, maybe not ARVC, maybe not CPVT, but that maybe they can participate in, in some of these sports with appropriate protective measures in place. So those are, those are some of the things that get us in this field excited. 
Dr. Robert, thank you so much. That's so inspiring. And I agree. I think the complexities and the intricacies of clinical genetics in the field of EP and that crossover into sports cardiology is so fascinating. And it's an ever-changing field. And I myself found my own heart fluttering for EP early on as a medical student. And it was really after seeking out and getting involved in research on Brigada syndrome at my medical school. This was born out of my own experience with my family. So my brother was diagnosed with Brigada syndrome when he was 14, and he had a positive genetic testing result for a variant in SCN5A, sort of akin to our channelopathy. But our experience as a family going through genetic testing and supporting my brother through his diagnosis and treatment really opened my eyes to the world of EP and genetics. And it's been amazing and inspiring road so far, and I look forward to a long career in the space as well. Well, Sarah, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's really poignant and appreciate your revealing why it's, how it can be so personal and how it can affect patients. And I, I think that helps us understand our patients to greater degree, knowing your story and your family's story. We certainly look forward to working with you on, on these exciting cases. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Sarah. You know, not only for preparing this incredible forum and learning objectives in, in curriculum, but also for sharing your personal story and really sort of bringing this home and, and really helping us understand why this information, these cases are so important. And I would also like to, to thank Carla for helping prepare the notes that are going to be as part of this and helping uh, lead this discussion. And then especially for, for Dr. Dobbert for really coming and sharing just an unbelievable amount of expertise and pearls that I know I personally learned a ton during this episode. And it's one that I'm going to have to go back and listen to, to really get every piece of information from. So we really appreciate all of your, all of your teaching. And I'd also like to thank my AFib series co-chair, Dr. Kelly Arps, for bringing all of us together, for bringing Dr. Coles and Dr. Darbert to cardio nerds and allowing us to have this, this incredible experience. Boop. Boop.